a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast, show number 30. Wow. Yes, we're racking up those shows with ending in zeros. Eventually we'll have show 1000. Yeah, eventually, yeah. I'll, I'll be dead by there. then, but... I'll carry on. <laughs> Ryan Jr., <laughs> once I make one. Or just your head in a bottle, perhaps. There we go, like Futurama. Yeah. Uh, I'm Ryan in Seattle. I'm Chrissy in Seattle. How you doing, Chrissy? I'm good. How are you? Have an odd day all around, which you know about, but we'll leave it a mystery for the pod listeners there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm good. I've been watching some stuff in order to prepare for this show. I started watching House of Cards again, and as usual, it sucks me in. Uh, uh, super excellent drama with Ian Richardson as Francis Urquhart, and I encourage anybody to watch it because it's really great. He is so good in that. Well, I've watched a bit. I have been kind of busy catching up on the QI series that just aired. I've seen a few of those. And the Have I Got News for You that just aired its fourth season. I'm kind of catching up there because I wait till I have enough to put it on a DVD and so I can watch it from oh. my, from the comfy chair, you know, in my living room instead of my computer. Although I, I do watch Doctor Who right away every week, but everything else I kind of wait till I have enough to burn. Have you replaced your computer screen yet? No. You have like a 1995 year computer screen. It's, it's old and dark and big, yeah, but Time it's fine. I don't really like this throw it away and buy a new one culture, so I tend to really keep things way past their sell-by date. Well, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see that uh, Graham Norton interrupts Doctor Who yet again? Yep, Simon Pegg was, he twittered angrily. So did Charlie Brooker. Yeah, he didn't like that one bit. Yes, uh, well, notoriously, back in the very first Doctor Who episode uh, during the revival in 2005 of Rose, there was a mistake in Master Control, and they had the audio from BBC Three bleeding into BBC One, and you suddenly heard Graham Norton talking whilst the Doctor was skulking around in the basement, or actually while Rose was skulking around right, in the basement before the, the Doctor rescued her from the Autons. But uh, Graham Norton strikes again. Again, it's not his fault. It's BBC Master Control, where they put a little animated bug saying, Over the rainbow, next! Right over the dramatic cliffhanger to yeah. last week's episode... And people were quite upset about this. They've got several thousand complaints at the BBC, and they have apologized profusely and said they'll never do it again. As well they should. That's what makes them extra special, the BBC. The no commercials, no bugs. Oh, they bug everything. Oh. In fact, the non-terrestrial channels all have bugs in the upper left-hand corner all the time. I mean, if you get something from BBC Three, it says BBC right. Three on there. That's correct. I've always sort of liked the voiceovers over the credits. Oh, but now at they the shrink the credits, though. It's... Well, they're required now to do... Well, it just seems very British and BBC-ish to me, so I like it for that reason. But the little animated cartoons, no, no. Yeah, so... Not after what was arguably the best so far of the season of the Doctor Who episodes. Yes, that was quite good. And we'll be telling you about that in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. So this week's episode, we have news, what's on British TV this week, what's running in the United States, DVD releases, and a feature on the upcoming general election in Britain, and what it means for television in the future. Yep, you and I, podcast listeners, will sit back and listen, because Ryan has promised that he is going to talk and talk, and of course, he's very knowledgeable about this, and we'll all enjoy it. Guaranteed to put cats asleep. Uh (laughs) Where's my cat? No cat here. Okay. News. The cat has left the room already, yeah, so he preemptively. Could, he's heard enough of me. 
The History Channel has ordered 10 episodes of an American version of BBC Two's most popular series, Top Gear. This is the third attempt to franchise the show in the U.S., a worldwide hit both in its original and tailor-made versions everywhere but here. NBC had attempted a version but decided against it after a pilot was shot. The second version's pilot starred funny man Adam Carolla, Tanner Faust, and Eric Stromer and was apparently so bad it's never been released. Both Corolla and Stromer have, were dropped for this most recent version, replacing them with comedian Adam Ferrer and mostly unknown speed commentator Rutledge Wood. Now my only question is, why is this on the History Channel? On the other hand, who thought that the biggest hit on NPR would be Car Talk? The original Top Gear, meanwhile, is available on BBC America. Well, they can put some historical cars. They'll get a Ford Prefect and drive it around the countryside and see how fast it can go. I don't know. The reason to watch Top Gear is the chemistry between the guys who are in it. The Fox Network has decided against doing an American version of Torchwood, much to the relief of its fans, even though series creator Russell T. Davies had written a pilot. However, Jane Tranter, now BBC Worldwide Executive Vice President of Programming and Production, says there is still, quote, several interested networks, and, quote, it's very much ongoing and very much alive. Uh-huh. Who wants Fox's sloppy seconds? Jane and Russell and Julie Gardner are all out in Los Angeles now trying to break into American television, but is this really the best way? At least Russell has written an episode of the Sarah Jane Adventures for later this year that will not only feature Matt Smith as the Doctor, but 1970s Doctor Who companion Joe Grant, played by Katie Manning. It will go out in the autumn on BBC One. Well, hey. So hopefully this is the nail that kills off American Torchwood, which nobody was terribly excited about except possibly Russell D. Davies. They're going to make more Do It in Britain. It's on the TV for the week of April 28th through May 5th. Wednesday, Waterloo Road continues on BBC One. Thursday, the third prime ministerial debate will be shown on BBC One with a focus on the economy. Who are these guys anyway? Find out in our feature about the upcoming general election in a few minutes. Greatest Cities of the World with Griff Rhys-Jones continues on ITV1 as he explores Sydney, Australia. Well, I have to agree there. I, I was in Sydney, Australia. It was the early 80s, but it's it was just a beautiful, beautiful city. The beautiful harbor coming into it on the train over the bridge. I'll have to watch that one. Yeah, my wife and I want to go to Australia. My sister's been there, and she got to climb up the famous bridge. They put you in these jumpsuits mm -hmm. and make sure nothing will fall off you, and then you're chained to it, and you walk all the way up there. I, I would never go up there, but... Well, a friend of mine, who you've met as well, the one who works for NBC, she went there for two months during the 2000 mm. Olympics, and it was pretty much 14-hour days all the time, but... Before they started, they did get one day off, and they got a little sponsored tour, and they got to go up on the bridge. So she was happy about that. I figure if we go down under, we want to take like six weeks off and be able to do Australia yeah. and New Zealand, because if you're on the plane for such a long time, you better really enjoy it. Yeah, it's you definitely ought to do that. And yeah, it's it varies. I've been to, I went to Perth, and I went to Sydney on that trip, and I was only 15. Oh. But... It was quite an experience. My grandmother emigrated here during the war and left five brothers and sisters back there who all had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So I have a gazillion relatives over there, which is funny because in Seattle I have almost nobody. You, your family's from Australia? Yes. 
Wow. Yes, on my grandma. My grandfather was stationed there during the war. And I they didn't... met my grandma during a blind date, and they got married four months later. Are you watching The Pacific on HBO? No. Oh, there's a great episode where the Marines basically get a two-month uh, furlough, and they all go to Australia, and this one guy falls in love with an Australian woman. And then they, she wants to break up with him because he's afraid he's going to die. You should watch it. I think you'd find it really interesting. Well, it's never been really laid out in my family's lore, but... Both my grandparents were very careful, considered people, and it was always kind of funny that they got engaged after knowing each other two months and married after four months. But my grandmother said, well, you did everything quickly then because you could die. So maybe not so much in Australia, but my grandfather had already been shot down in combat three times by the time he met her. So off the topic of British comedy, go hmm. ahead and cut this out, Ryan. It's all good. No, Australia is a great place. Channel 4 continues the comedy panel show all about television you have been watching, presented by Charlie Brooker. Haven't seen it yet, but I've got one waiting, so maybe I'll... I have tomorrow off, so I think maybe I'll get a little TV and... Neat. Yeah, and I'll tell you how I like it next week. On BBC3, Russell Howard's Good News continues. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. I haven't either. There's an Australian show called Good News Week. I'm wondering if it's similar in format to that, or... This is apparently the most popular program on BBC3. Hmm. Well, then one of us better watch it. On Friday, the fifth episode of Ashes to Ashes has yet another connection to life on Mars with obnoxious DCI Lytton crossing over into Alex's life as he tries to track down an old comedian. Last week's episode provided an explanation of who vandalized the Blue Peter Garden at the BBC Television Center in 1983. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. The initials were GH. Oh, no. Frank Skinner's Opinionated continues on BBC Two. Friday Night with Jonathan Ross on BBC One has guests Russell Crowe, Reginald D. Hunter, and DZ Rascal. I like Reginald D. Hunter. I'm always really interested in these American comedians who go over and are perhaps even much more of success in the Great Britain. For like Greg Proops, who's far well who has tons of albums and things out over there that never came out here. And Reginald D. Hunter sort of hit 30, and he's from um, Alabama, was kind of bored with his life. So he went over to the UK, auditioned for RADA, and got in, and got his degree at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, and then was doing the jobbing actor thing where he'd have a role in a play, and then six months of going back to waiting tables with his and trying to renew his green card. And then he just entered a stand-up comedy New Faces Night on a Whim and turned out to be really good at it, so he's more known now for his comedy. It's kind of what Alan Davies did, isn't it? Yeah, but I also am always interested in people who just decide, oh, I'm going to move across the world and do something entirely different because you go, you only go around once, and he did it, and he did it well. Maybe he saw Rich Hall and said, hey, I have the same initials as him. I can go become Could an American be, yeah. in Britain. Well, he's, I always like him on Have I Got News For You. I think he's been on three times now. He starts out kind of slow, and you're not sure what to make of him, and then you realize there's a there's a big powerful mind going tick-tock, tick-tock. Well, as a token American, too, he can yeah, throw out all sorts of things. Right. Especially when um, they were asking him questions about Obama yeah. during the, the whole election. That was interesting, too. So, let's see, back to the menu of wonderful television next week. Saturday night, Doctor Who at 6.25 with the conclusion to the Weeping Angels story, Flesh and Stone. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I reckon I am too. Yes. 
It was quite a good part one. Doctor Who Confidential will be shown on BBC Three immediately following the end of the episode at 7.10pm. Did you watch last week's Doctor Who Confidential? I'm not following the Confidentials. Oh, I'll, uh, I'll see him in the summer. Matt Smith, uh, you learned a little bit about his method acting in that one. Because hmm. so. that is the first story they shot was the Time of the Angels. The mm-hmm. scene on the beach is the very, very, very first thing they ever shot. I thought it was pretty good. It didn't look like they were finding their characters at all. It's so. called good acting. But that's what it is. The remake of The Prisoner continues on ITV1. Sunday on ITV1 sees the return of Lewis, the spinoff series from Inspector Morse with Kevin Waitley as the detective. Channel 4 has Bremner Burn and Fortune, The Daily Windup, starting for three days of impressions, satire, and monologues in the run-up to the general election. It continues Monday and Tuesday. Rory Bremner is a great impressionist. He could do Major and Brown and Blair and all of them quite well. He did a pretty good Bill Clinton well, Stephen Fry once said that the first time that Prince Charles called him up, he thought it was Rory Bremner <laughs> playing a joke on him. <laughs> and it was very rude and said, F off Rory, <laughs> and had to backtrack a bit there when he realized it truly was His Royal Highness. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, uh, so it's John Byrd and John Fortune, and uh, they do a very good bit of mocking those in power. Wish we had something. Well, I guess we have the Daily Show here, but uh, these guys really go for it. They often will do very long form they do documentaries they... about scandals and various uh, big stories as well, rather than just you know, what's going on that right. week. Right, and they take their time. They really can just take their time and slowly go let something build, rather than just rat-a-tat-a-tat-a-tat-a, which you see in television so often. I really appreciate them. Yeah. Monday, Bangos the Theory is on BBC One. And ITV1's Joanna Lumley's Nile continues. And Blitz Street with Tony Robinson continues on Channel 4. The Graham Norton Show on BBC One has guests Jennifer Lopez, Karen Gillian, and Alan Davis. Tuesday sees a new crime drama on BBC One, Luther, starring The Wire's Idris Elba. He's really British, you know. He's not from Baltimore. Back from suspension, Luther must solve a seemingly perfect double murder. Shameless continues on Channel 4. BBC Three has La La Land with Mark Wooten starring as three hopeless Hollywood wannabes. I don't know who Mark Wooten is, but that sounds funny. (laughs) Yeah, the Radio Times listing had it starring Mark Wooten, Mark Wooten, and Mark Wooten. Oh, good. (laughs) They have fun with that. I remember the last time I was there, one of the TV guides had the uh, film, whatever the year was, with Jonathan Ross, and it just said, Wavews with Wassie. (laughs) On BBC America this week, Wednesday, it's the double feature of David Mitchell and Robert Webb comedies, That Mitchell and Webb Look, and Peep Show. Friday Night with Jonathan Ross is on Friday. Go figure. Saturday, on Doctor Who, it's Victory of the Daleks. It will be repeated again on Tuesday. Hey, do you know what's happening a week later? What? The Weeping Angels are back. Yes, sir. It's a bit like eating your vegetables before getting to have the lovely dessert at the end of the meal. And that's all we'll say about it for now. Graham Norton is also on Saturday. And Monday, there's new episodes of Top Gear. And interspersed amongst us, many, many episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. I don't know why. 
Sunday on PBS's Masterpiece Mystery is the latest series of Foils War, with Michael Kitchen as the detective, now in the post-war period, solving crimes. Yeah, Foils War had been canceled by ITV, and then they said, what? Oh, people still like it. And they brought it back, even though the war was over, and there's still mysteries for him to solve. Oh, yeah. On Wednesday, April 28th, hopefully you haven't heard this show already, on most PBS stations on great performances will be the Royal Shakespeare Company's Hamlet, starring David Tennant and Patrick Stewart. The Discovery Channel continues the documentary series Life on Sunday. Showtime continues The Tudors, starring Jonathan Rhys Myers. The Independent Film Channel has the Johnny Vegas comedy series Ideal. It's weeknights except for Thursday. On Adult Swim on Friday night has the Mighty Boosh the at 1.30 a.m. The Sci-Fi Channel, the second season of BBC's Merlin, continues on Friday night. DVD releases. Survivors, complete seasons one and two. This is the remake starring Julie Graham and Patterson Joseph that just finished running on BBC America. Also released this week is the original 1970s version of Survivors, which managed to last three years. Created by Terry Nation, its minimalist 70s production values really help sell the idea that the world is mostly unpopulated now. What's going to happen? I thought about it a great deal. Uh, those of us who have come through this are in some way biological freaks. We've survived by chance. Now, the aftermath of this sickness will be more terrible than we can imagine. The real survivors will be those who can come through what must follow. Oh, but surely it won't be that hard. There must be tons of preserved foods, cars, petrol. The stockpile of things must be enormous. Oh, it'll be enough for many, many years, but that would be simply scavenging, wouldn't it? And a constantly diminishing supply. What is important is learning again. Things you've never even needed to consider before, for instance. That. Could you make that? Where does the raw material come from? Do you know? Well, some sort of oil product, I suppose. Or before that, tallow or animal fat. But could you make it? Something as simple as a candle, starting from scratch. Well, I could probably find out. It must be in a book somewhere. All right, take it from there. A book will tell you how electricity is generated, but could you do it? Right from the very beginning. Find the metal in the earth, dig it up, refine it, turn it into wire. Could you make and cast glass for a light bulb? You'll need to know every part of every process. A carpenter, a man who works in wood, he doesn't chop down the trees, he doesn't forge the steel for his saw. Could he make a hammer? Nails? For myself, I could perhaps fashion some sort of stone tool. We really are that primitive. Incredible, isn't it? We're of the generation that landed a man on the moon, and the best we can do is talk about making tools out of stone. I was a big fan of this series and went to some trouble to collect them on VHS back in the 1980s from various sources. Terry Nation has three big claim to fames on television. The first is he invented the Daleks back in 1963, and then Survivors in 1975, and Blake Seven a few years later. Did you know he also worked on the first couple episodes of MacGyver? I did not know that, no. Yes, and then he ended up falling out with the producers. But back to Survivors. As opposed to the somewhat more overblown and frankly overly dramatic remake for the 21st century, the original relies on the acting and the drama, and not a lot of music zoom-outs to space or cross-cutting to giant conspiracies developing. 
You only knew what the characters knew and found out, and it rewarded patient viewing. It's a bit of television history that is worth checking out. The Last of the Summer Wine, vintage 1982-83, is now on DVD. This long-running BBC comedy, it's still on the air, though rumors that the cast are members of the undead remain unfounded. Murphy's Law Season 2 with James Nesbitt as an undercover policeman is out. And the 1995 version of Pride and Prejudice has been newly digitally restored. This is the one with Colin Firth and the famous swimming sequence. Mm-hmm. My wife likes that one. The drippy, drippy shirt. The yep. drippy shirt. That drippy shirt that made his career. I saw him in a really strange film that was about the Romans in Britain. It's starring Colin Firth and it was made by the Italians. They also had Ben Kingsley. Mm-hmm. And it all and then it turned into a Merlin myth at the very end. But it was interesting Colin Firth running around dressed as a Roman centurion in a big action movie. He's done interesting things. It's not British, but check out Apartment Zero sometime if it's finally out on DVD. It's quite a good little uh, mystery from 20 years ago. He's in that? Yeah. Wow. No, I've seen that movie. I didn't know who he was at the time. Mm -hmm. Wow. Hmm. Colin Firth for you, all you out there. So our feature this week is on the upcoming British general election. If I were captain of the Titanic, which of my senior officers should I be worried about? Beware of an old man in a hurry. Have you heard that phrase, Matty? Lord Billsborough. But he's Collingridge's closest advisor. Surely he can't still think he could be party leader, not at his age, not from the Lords. So? He doesn't want it for himself. He wants to pull the strings. He wants the party leadership for one of his protégés. You might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. Michael Samuels. You might think that. Lord Billsborough is setting up Collingridge as an Aunt Sally so that Michael Samuels can take his place when the time comes. You might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. So that was the late, great Ian Richardson as the fictional Prime Minister Francis Urquhart from House of Cards in 1990. But if you remember the series well, he wasn't running in a general election, but was rather scheming to become the party leader. Well, what's that all about? How does a general election on May 6th work? And what's it got to do with the future of British television? Listen and find out. General elections are not scheduled in advance at a set time like in the United States, where they are every two years in November for members of Congress and every four years for president. They're only required in Britain every five years, but they can be called at any time if, for instance, the party in power thinks it has a huge political advantage or if there is a vote of no confidence in the Houses of Parliament in the cases of a coalition government. There is no direct election of the prime minister. Whomever is the party leader of the party with a majority becomes prime minister. The queen is involved in this too, but let's not get pedantic about who forms the government, etc. There are 646 constituencies in Britain, similar to congressional districts in the United States. 
Each one elects a single member to parliament based on the top vote-getter in each constituency, again, like in the USA. Even though voters are voting for their local MP, they really are voting for the party they represent because of the policies which the party has put in its manifesto or platform and who the head of the party is. There are three major parties right now in Britain. The current party in power, the Labour Party, with Gordon Brown as the incumbent prime minister the Conservative or Tory party with David Cameron, and the Liberal Democrats with Nick Clegg. Each party, regardless if they are in power or not, has a complete shadow cabinet with secretaries and policies ready to assume their positions if they get in. You know exactly who all the members of the government will be beforehand, and generally, in British politics, parties stick to their manifestos rather than using them to sucker in voters and then forgetting them, as often happens in the United States. So a little history then. Margaret Thatcher becomes the head of the Conservative Party as voted on by members of the party in 1975. But the Tories did not win the election until 1979, which is when she became Prime Minister. She never lost a general election. She lost a leadership battle for head of the party in 1990 and was replaced by John Major. There was no general election. The Tories were still in power. They had just changed leaders. They can do that at any time when a leader becomes too unpopular to their own party members. Imagine that. I remember that was right when I saw Patrick Stewart up in Vancouver. Mm. I, I know you said you went to that. Yeah, I was there. Too. It might have been, there were over two days. I, I think we were there the second day, but oh. he was celebrating that she had just gone from power. He wasn't a fan, huh? No, he said not before her time. He was very excited. There was a really funny uh, sitcom called Dunruland. <laughs> and it was the adventures of the Thatchers after Margaret had gone out of power and had been filmed and was sitting on the shelves of the BBC ready to want run the week she left. And finally when she was gone, they put it out and put it on there. It was quite amusing. John Major incredibly managed to hang on to the Tory slim majority in the general election of 1992. This led to the famous headline in Rupert Murdoch's Sun newspaper, It's the Sun What Won It! They claimed it was their support for Major that had done the job, particularly their scathing coverage of Labourhead Neil Kinnock. Needless to say, the newspapers in Britain can be extremely partisan. Major held on for the entire five-year session of Parliament until 1997 when he was forced to call an election. After many long years in the political wilderness, the rebranded New Labour under Tony Blair won in a landslide with the largest majority in Parliament since the war. In 2005, Labour maintained their majority even though they lost 100 seats in the general election that year. Gordon Brown had been Blair's Chancellor of the Exchequer, basically the Treasury Secretary, and supposedly the deal was that Blair would stay leader for two terms and then turn it over to Brown. Of course, there's the famous Michael Sheen drama about this and the supposedly dinner that they had where this was all decided and then uh, Blair you know, changed his mind and Brown was just kind of left to stew. Although basically being in charge of the entire financial arm of the government is a very powerful position. <laughs> In the end, Blair quit in 2007, and the party elected Brown its leader, and hence the new prime minister, to finish out Blair's term ending this year. Over the past few years, Labour has been polling very poorly. The wars, the economy, and general fatigue with having the same party in power for 13 years have taken their toll. 
The conventional wisdom until recently was that the Tories were primed for a major comeback. It was their election to lose. But Brown has been polling slightly better lately, and the sudden surge in popularity with Nick Clegg and the Liberal Democrats present a scenario where there may be a hung parliament, no outright winner. In this case, a coalition government is formed with two parties coming together to support a single candidate for prime minister who then has to keep everyone happy. (laughs) So what's this all got to do with British television then? The BBC operates under a royal charter that allows it to charge a license fee in order to pay for its services. Currently, this TV license fee, originally on radios but since discontinued, is £145.50 per year. It's a tax. It's mandatory if you own a television in Britain capable of receiving TV signals. Some people think the license fee is good value for money. The people of Britain get at least two terrestrial television channels and seven radio services, plus international ones, all commercial free. Some people think it's too much, that people at the BBC like Jonathan Ross and various executives are paid too much and waste the license payers' money. And there are some people like the executives at the commercial television channels, and in particular Rupert Murdoch, who would love to see the BBC gotten rid of completely so they could compete and form public opinion in a profit-making free market system, like in the United States. Mm-hmm. Murdoch, who supported the Tories so fiercely in the early 1990s, remember it was the Sun would want it, agreed to help Tony Blair's new labor in 1997 in exchange for various bits of deregulation legislation. But for the past year, Murdoch's vast empire has been on a crusade on behalf of David Cameron and the Conservative Party. He hopes they will help him accomplish his goals to severely reduce the BBC's impact on the television universe in the UK. Obviously, we don't get a vote, but everyone listening to this podcast is probably a fan of programs made by the BBC and think they do a pretty good job at making good quality television. A lot of actors and creative people in Britain agree, with a letter signed recently by over 40 well-known entertainers including Eddie Izzard, Catherine Tate, John Barrowman, and Peter Capaldi. In it, they ask voters to consider the future of the BBC and to get the parties to state explicitly what their policies vis-a-vis the Beeb are going forward. The Labour Manifesto says the current government is determined to, quote, Maintain the independence of the BBC, the most admired and trusted broadcaster in the world. And the Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, recently said, quote, Any proposal to massively cut the fee, strip the BBC of its independence, or remove its ability to make certain programs is a huge mistake. A lot of the BBC does is incredibly creative and risky. The Lib Dem Manifesto says the party plans to keep the BBC, quote, strong, free from interference, and securely funded. David Cameron, in an interview with the Radio Times this week, says, I'm probably the most pro-BBC conservative leader there's ever been. But he has said the conservatives would freeze the license fee and may cut it in the future years if they came into power. The Tories in particular want to conduct a complete audit of the BBC and publish the salaries of everyone in the government, including BBC employees, who earn more than £150,000 a year. Who do you trust? You have to admire the British election system. It's over and done with in about a month, unlike presidential elections in the United States that seemingly go on forever. Aren't there people already running right now for 2012? (laughs) Also, paid political advertising is not allowed on British TV. Imagine what a campaign season would be like without the saturation bombing of political ads, particularly attack ads. Curse you, First Amendment! 
What happens instead in Britain is each party is given a certain amount of airtime in proportion to their relative popularity, which they can fill however they want. Party political broadcasts, which are actually shown year-round, there are just fewer of them when it's not election time, used to be boring affairs with some old guy behind a desk explaining his party's policies in a very dry manner. Now they are slick little 10-minute infomercials featuring celebrities, upbeat music, and attempts to appeal to voters' interests and concerns. This is the only time you see anything resembling an advertisement on the BBC. And of course they run on ITV and Channel 5 as well. A week out, the election sure looks close. With three viable parties and the possibility it may all end in a huge tie could lead to a real cliffhanger on May 6th. The polls close at 10 p.m. and the first results will be announced about 11 p.m. British time. What's fun to watch is the reading of the results from each constituency. Typically, a stage or large venue is set up with the Lord Mayor or some such official in charge. All the candidates, and there can be dozens, you only need 10 signatures and 500 pounds to get on the ballot in a constituency, stand there like monkeys as the results are read out. It's like watching the Oscar winners being announced only 646 times! (laughs) It's particularly fun when a well-known politician loses their seat and you see his or her crushed face live on television. It's a great spectacle. Meanwhile, BBC One and ITV One are counting up the results. The coverage on the BBC is the best with their swingometer. This graphic display measures the trends and shows who's in the majority. From a relatively simple prop in the 1950s, this year it will be computer-generated 3D graphic capable of illustrating the results of all three major parties. Channel 4, meanwhile, will counter the coverage on BBC One and ITV with the Alternative Election Night with David Mitchell, Lauren Laverne, Jimmy Carr, and Charlie Brooker broadcasting live in front of an audience and reacting to the results as they come in. BBC Two used to do this with the election night armistice, with Armando Iannucci and Steve Coogan mocking the whole process, but the satire mantle has been passed to Channel 4 this year. Since 1992, I've enjoyed watching the general election results being shown here live in the United States. Since most of the action over Britain occurs in the middle of the night over there, it's still relatively early here, particularly on the West Coast. C-SPAN is a good channel to check out, although they have to wait until Congress is recessed for the night before switching over to the BBC feed. And some public television channels will carry the feed as well. Check your local listings. So there we go. There you go. The only part that bothers me about the license is what they do to people who haven't paid it. Go to jail. Well... And how they find them out, they'll drive to their house and aim a gizmo at the house to see if they can pick up the electronic readings that a television's... And living in the United States, that's kind of hard to imagine unless you're under surveillance by the FBI for a crime. Well, you may have noticed that they don't really have the same right to privacy in Britain as we do here. I mean, they have CCTV everywhere in Britain. Mm -hmm. If you're out in a public place, you were probably on a camera... I think it's the most watched population per capita in the world. I mean, even dictatorships like Iran and China have nothing on what the British have. Well, I think it stems back to World War II because they were the most bossed around non-communist population ever. And they got used to it. (laughs) And I'm being told absolutely everything fined for throwing away food and just net tattled on and spied on and, and being and just directive after directive. I think they just set the precedent and that's why they've 
Well, that's why 1984 works as a credible book right. because you know Americans read it and go, well, who who would put up such a system like that? But the, you know, there's a logical extension of what was going on at the time. You know, it was written in 1948, just after the war. You know, it was credible that people would go along with that and do what Big Brother would have told you to do. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, right after the war, too, you know, Churchill and the Tories had been in power the whole time, and they didn't have any elections during the war itself, which lasted for six years in Britain. And immediately after winning the war, Churchill lost big time to yeah. Labour and Clement Attlee, and that brought in the welfare state. What did someone whisper? Don't you think he looks tired? And <laughs> he got back in the fifties. Yeah, but yeah, it was a stunning turnaround. That, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I won the war for you. Out on your feet. And if you lose the election, you're gone the next day. You clean out number ten, and the new guy moves in as soon as he's talked to the queen. But that may not happen on the seventh. You'll have to put a little tape line down the the royal bedroom, or <laughs> well, not the royal bedroom, but the. Prime ministerial. Bedroom. Well, there's only one prime minister, but he may have a mixed cabinet. Right. Yes, if that happens. But who knows? Someone may, may be first past the post, in which case all this is moot, but it should be very interesting. Well, next week, I saw the movie Kick-Ass recently. It's about wannabe superheroes in New York. Mm-hmm. One of the producers is Jonathan Ross's wife. Yeah, and she wrote, um, was it Stardust, I believe? Or Yeah, she was one yeah. of the screenwriters in that. Well, what you may not know is the cast of Kick-Ass is filled with British actors. The villain is played by Mark Strong, recently seen in the Sherlock Holmes movie. One of his henchmen was Dexter Fletcher from Hotel Babylon. And Jason Fleming from Primeval even turns up as a doorman. The star, Aaron Johnson, is British born and bred. He has made frequent appearances on British TV, including Nearly Famous and Talk to Me. All of them impersonating, quite well actually, Americans. What about on TV? Are British actors taking over American television? That Hugh Laurie guy on House is American, isn't he? What about Tim Roth on Lie to Me? Hey, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So next week, the British invasion of American TV. It may already be too late. It's an infestation. Several years ago, there was a great documentary, mockumentary, I should say, on uh, Canadian TV called The Canadian Conspiracy. And it was an attempt to unmask all the Canadians who had secretly moved to the United States and were working in television, like Michael J. Fox mm-hmm. and William Shatner and all that. And uh, <laughs> It was shocking, shocking how many. Alex Trebek, he's Canadian. There's so many of them. But now the, the British seem to be all over the place. So we'll talk about British actors on American TV. If we haven't bored you to death here, we want you to come and check out our website, www.britishtvpodcast.com. You can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week. Send us feedback at feedback at britishtvpodcast.com and find an archive of our previous 29 shows. That's a lot of shows. It would take you a long time to listen to all of those. Some people are doing that. And we got some lovely feedback last week. Thank you very much to those who wrote to you and wrote a nice review on iTunes. We appreciate it. Well, nifty. Yeah, it's a lot to look forward to this week. I say I think Doctor Who will be pretty good on the BBC. And for those of you watching BBC America, just muddle through. There's a war on, and it gets a lot better afterwards. Yeah, I, I, on the internets, they were getting a little worried there for a while, but everyone's all happy and back to normal about how the season is going, so that's good. 
yeah, a friend of mine wanted me to give my opinion on how the trend of the season is going. And I said, the trend, this is like watching four baseball games and deducing how the entire season is going to go with your team. It's just too early to tell. But they've done enough good things that I think things are in really good hands. So stick with Doctor Who if you are a fan. All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Next week, bye-bye. You might think that. I couldn't possibly comment.